Welcome to the Innovate CT Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Innovate CT Podcast. And I'm excited to announce that for this episode, we actually have a guest host, Rana Arshad Haviz, an educator and community worker here in Connecticut for over 20 years. She'll be guest hosting a variety of podcasts for Innovate Connecticut over the upcoming weeks and months, and we're super excited to have her be part of the show. This episode features Dr. Colleen Palmer, Superintendent of Westport Public Schools, who was recognized as Superintendent of the Year in 2016 by the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Palmer, for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Um, this is going to be just a very informal conversations about some of the thoughts that I have um, about public education, and you happen to be leading a very unique district in Connecticut. So, Dr. Palmer, recently I read this book by Tony Wagner called Most Likely to Succeed, and he takes a certain perspective on innovation. And I know in Westport, you are that's part of your strategic plan. You're thinking a lot about innovation. So um, talk to us about what do you, how do you envision innovation and what does that mean really in the 21st century learning skills? I think the ability for our staff, our students, uh, everyone involved in our school district to look at things in a new, fresh way and to think out of the box and to create um, new pathways of thinking is essential to success in the 21st century. Uh, it is the thinking skills that we have that will allow us and our students to be successful to new challenges. I believe that creating an environment where innovation is enhanced, where risk-taking is promoted, uh, and where we take the time to look at how we've tried new ways is instructive and uh, helps to propel us to a higher level of innovation. So just uh, staying on that theme of innovation, um, there is a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of conversations around technology and it's used in secondary education. And many times we think of the two things, innovation and technology, as going hand in hand. Certainly in our economy, we have seen how innovation has played a role in our economy, and mostly it has been through technology. But how do you see the relationship of the two? Uh, technology is an essential tool today that allows us to transform how students learn. If I think back early in my career, there was an opportunity, say, 30 years ago for schools to be connected, uh, hardwired with cable so that you would actually be able to talk face-to-face -face with other students in another school. And it cost $250,000 for a school to hop on this uh, network. Mm -hmm. And today, if we pick up our smartphone, mm -hmm. I can talk to anyone in the world mm -hmm. on this smartphone. So if we think about the evolution of technology that it has brought the world so closer it's allowed us to be connected uh, it has allowed us to communicate uh, either individually or in groups of people to have authentic audiences out in the world much uh, further beyond my cl uh, students classroom or the school uh, so i look at technology and it isn't an end unto itself but it is 
just one of the tools we have that allows us to create more uh, engaging, uh, rigorous learning experiences for our students. And at the same time, it's interesting that, you know, with all this niche marketing and personalized learning, we also hear that technology actually is limiting collaboration and limiting the way we, you know, we have begun to live more in our silos. So that is certainly, you know, one of the important aspects of innovation is to be able to collaborate and collaborate flexibly. That's inherent to human evolution. But uh it, it inhibits us from doing that. So what are your thoughts on that? I think you've hit on a very important uh, theme that we have to use technology appropriately. I think I recently saw a commercial on TV where the mother has the power to turn off all the internet so at the dinner table no one can be on their phones and they actually have to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And we all laugh, but that I have seen this happen where a family is on vacation and they all have their eyes uh, on their own devices. It's important to make sure we have a balanced mix of human interaction and interaction between humans that is brought about because of technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is nothing that can replace a face-to-face conversation with an individual, Mm -hmm. and we can't minimize the impact of that. And I do agree it would be easy if we only thought we were going to connect through technology to to lose that personal touch and to be aware of what's going around and to listen and to pay attention. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important that we uh, emphasize with our students. Mm -hmm. And that, again, uh, I feel that that's an important Howard Gardner, when he talks about, like, you know, five mindsets to the future, he talks a lot about this, like, you know, the whole concept of diversity is it's very limited vision or a myopic vision when we think about diversity is just color or you know you know this person we have to but it has to really be diverse thinking and diverse thinking emanates from us being able to interact and collaborate with a variety of people uh, agreed agreed <laughs> you said it so beautifully i don't know if i can add to that <laughs> um so uh, moving on from there um what do you think is um, the role, role of teacher efficacy in learning outcomes of students? There's a lot that has been said about it. You know, there are many people who would say this is the single most important thing. But teachers do, and I have been a teacher for a long time, you know, teachers' jobs have become incredibly hard in the past 20 years that I have been in the profession. And you probably can speak more to that than I can. So, and you know, just public schools are very hard places. The role of an educator is very challenging, and I think that role continues to increase in its complexity as we look at uh, the the um, issues that face our students as they as they grow up in an ever changing world. However, I I do embrace um, the research that has shown the uh, teacher efficacy has one of the most powerful impacts on how our students learn. And I'd like to think that it isn't just the, it's not just the instruction in class. I'm, I would like us to step back and think about teachers as architects. Teachers are architects of designing learning experiences. And so we have to think differently. It isn't the teacher standing and delivering that they're in front of a class and they're, they are engaging students, and, and of course that happens uh, as part of the repertoire of teaching. 
But long before the students enter the classroom, the teacher has to have a plan. They have to have designed the learning so that the needs of the various students can be met. Uh, students have voice and choice in their learning. Uh, engaging qualities of learning are embedded within that lesson that we are hitting the standards that we uh, want to make sure our students uh, become competent in. I've seen uh, lesson design, but unless it has the right content, our students aren't, aren't learning um, the right, um, the right um, outcomes. So I think if we, if we think that the, the role is more of an architect of um, designing that learning experience, it actually takes the role of a teacher to even a higher level of uh, complexity and sophistication. I have not seen a situation where students have been able to, I believe, rise to their highest levels of learning in an experience unless it was well-designed um, and executed um, to involve those students appropriately. So just following up on that, you know, also teachers have a huge part in the social-emotional learning of the students. And, um, you know, that is, I know that's an important part of your vision for this district and, you know, just generally of, in education. So how do you think about that? Like, you know, of course, there are the goals and, you know, the teaching standards, but even the common core standards or next generation science standards are just common sense teaching. We are thinking about habits of mind, which is really embedded in social emotional learning. So um, that that makes a teacher's job even more complex. And how do you measure for that, teacher efficacy for that? So that will be um, part of the work that we are embedding in our uh, in the next few years as part of our strategic plan. Mm -hmm. A student has to feel um, psychologically safe in a, in a learning environment within the classroom, within the school. They have to feel that um, people care about them they also have to have the skills to navigate and be able to have relationships um, with others and, and understand how to express their own feelings, how to express their feelings, how to, how to navigate that whole social emotional network. Part of what we're doing is we have a partnership with uh, Yale University and the work of um, emotional intelligence that we actually pre-K through 12 are um, going to be involving all of our students in lessons next year that will involve all of our students um, becoming more adept at understanding their own emotions, um, how they connect to people, how they understand um, how their own social emotional uh, 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 repertoire of skills impacts their own lives. This year we focused on teachers. But if we can't work with students in terms of who they are as people, um, I think it, we will be stunted in what we can achieve in terms of their cognitive development. And we know that the two are, are linked. So uh, these, two, these two themes, these two goals go um, hand in hand and they're intertwined in our approach in teaching and learning in our district. So, you know, but how do we measure teacher's efficacy and uh, is there a way, because this is the time of data and we seem to, uh, you know, think about data and mm -hmm. all of that in every possible terms. And I 
personally mm-hmm. actually feel that there are many things in a classroom which can't be measured. So. Well, there are many things that are hard to measure, but there are also um, bits that we can observe, that we can talk to students. Uh, part of our part of going forward is really to uh, put in place what are the metrics for the social emotional learning. How do we know uh, what our students know and what value it is to them? So I would think that it would be a multimodal approach. I would think that we would have uh, perhaps some um, surveys, but I think we'd have um, focus groups. And we actually have been very fortunate. We have a psychometrician whose background is in measuring social emotional learning Mm -hmm. and is going to be working with us to develop um, assessments that are appropriate for each stage of the the learning development. Mm -hmm. There will be some self-reporting. I think there'll be some reporting also by teachers about the climate of the classroom. Is there less conflict? Is there uh, more resolution? Is there more harmony in the classroom? What are the number, numbers of times of, um, that students uh, need to uh, kind of be separated from uh, the main learning area? Mm-hmm. So I think there's some hard data, but a lot of it is going to be um, qualitative. It's gonna be conversations and and also um, asking our students how are they doing? Do they feel comfortable mm-hmm. in their in in their in their learning environment? Now a lot of that is what we're responsible for, but also it's what they bring to the table mm-hmm. and integrate into that environment. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things against public schools or for public schools is you know they a lot of charter schools um, feel that you know it's hard for public schools to keep pulse of the efficacy of their teachers because of the tenure issue. I know Westport has many very talented teachers. Actually, I would say that about any district. I have worked in many districts and many, I, it's it's seldom that you come across a teacher that who you say, oh my God, I'm not going to put it, put my kid in front of this teacher. But, you know, so what do you think about that? That, you know, they say one of that's one of the biggest differences between charter schools and public schools. Well, it's interesting. In my career, I've had an opportunity to work at the Capital Region Education uh, Council in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And part of my work there was to actually work in magnet schools, and I had an opportunity to co-sponsor a charter school. Uh And as a public school, these are all public schools. Mm -hmm. So when we say public schools, I think we want to be inclusive of all forms of public education. Mm -hmm. If I looked at... uh, the talent pool between the various, the magnet, the um, the charter, and the traditional, mm-hmm. I think you're going to find a range, a range of talent in all of those schools. And what I have found to be one of the most uh, leading indicators of how well that school is doing is the leadership of the of the school. Whether the leader is taking time to develop teachers. Because you can have a teacher who's struggling, but are they? If if you mm-hmm. if you don't help them, they probably are going to be in a downward spiral. They're going to mm-hmm. use strategies that aren't effective. They're going to become more desperate in terms of trying to move things along. So, who are the leaders who are investing in the teachers? Uh, who are the leaders who are articulating the standards of performance that are acceptable? And then, who are the leaders who? after giving much assistance, at some point are um, exiting that teacher from mm-hmm. that school. Mm-hmm. So even though 
most of my career I've danced in traditional public schools. I have exited tenure teachers mm-hmm. from those systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the charter school, at being on a board for a charter school, the charter school has exited um, teachers as well. It is a much more intensive process if a teacher has tenure, but it doesn't mean that it isn't the responsibility of leadership um, to take action mm-hmm. if if we have a teacher that is no longer effective or has never been effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to you know slightly. A different theme. Uh, Connecticut recently has been going through these uh, discussions about the you know equity in public school funding for districts which are affluent and districts which are uh, which are more needy, where students come from uh, different backgrounds. Um, how do you think about this issue? I think this is the largest education issue that faces the state of Connecticut. We do have uh, a, 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 a significant achievement gap. And um, I have worked at both um, ends of the spectrum in terms of socioeconomic status of the community. I've worked in Hartford, and now here I am in one of the most affluent communities um, in Connecticut. The, um, the differences are vast, and they transcend beyond um, the school district. These are really um, issues that the entire state of Connecticut needs to care about all of its children. Mm-hmm. And while much has been placed in terms of uh, responsibility on the school for the child during the day, um, and even though we're one of the most affluent districts, we do feed uh, students breakfast, we do feed um, students lunch. Uh, we just don't have the same numbers as other communities. Our parents are fortunate here in that they there are resources um, for trips to museum, for other um, vacations, for to to uh, to hire a tutor if they feel that they want to uh, provide additional support. So most of our students here, from the um, based on the socioeconomic status of the community have um, richer learning experiences prior to formal entry to school, which is a vast uh, jump, uh, head start uh, to starting school. So as we look at the state of Connecticut, uh, and it's hard, you asked me probably the biggest question and I've spent (laughs) many years working on this. Uh, I think in Connecticut, we have to have a commitment to early uh, childhood education for all students. I think we have to have universal pre-K that if that can't be provided by families in a community, that this we owe it to those children to uh, engage those learners at the earliest age so they don't fall behind, so that when a student from the um, an impoverished area perhaps enter school versus a student in a more affluent area. And the difference in vocabulary is thousands of words on day one. Um, how, do, how do you close the gap if when they enter formal education, they're already miles apart? So I think that um, as a state, we need to look at our state uh, education and ensure that we are sharing best practices. 
The state of Connecticut has tremendous fiscal constraint right now. Our state Department of Education, I believe the last percentage I heard was 30% of the positions are open and they're not allowed to fill those positions. So our State Department of Education, in my opinion, has been decimated in terms of trying to help districts. I think that district leaders across the, stri across the state owe it to the children of Connecticut to forge strong partnerships, informal partnerships, to bridge um, some of the gaps and share experiences between districts, perhaps those that have more with, with some who, don't, who aren't as fortunate to have the same levels of resources. I think this will enrich the lives of all of our children. But again, I'm going to go back. Uh, schools can't give a safe home to every child. Um, and in terms of um, an, um, ensuring that every child has the appropriate um, health uh, interventions, this, this is a, a significant area of concern, uh, in my opinion, for the children of Connecticut. So we are Yankees. We like to do it our own way. We have 169 <laughs> districts. And the quality of our school, the quality of a child's education should not be determined by their zip code. Uh, it will take uh, much for our state to begin to break down those barriers. But I do believe um, some of the conversations that are happening throughout the state are beginning um, to address that. It's a complicated issue. It's a, that's a, you know it's a, it's a. I think that's a podcast unto itself. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned in your uh, just now you mentioned that you know how can some districts share the resources that they have perhaps with districts which may not have as many resources. So when you think of that, uh, it brings us to the question of diversity in schools. How do you think of diversity? And you know, of course, there is. It's the right thing to do, but besides being the right thing to do, a lot of large corporations, who where you know the bottom line is the most important thing, even they are including diversity now. Why is it really important in our schools to have diversity? You know, for students to be, and we talked about this a little bit before, but you know, it would, you know, why can't Westport be insular and do great? Whereas 20 miles north, we have a community which is one of the worst in the nation in terms of, you know, uh, their educational outcomes. So why is it important for Westport to have that kind of, you know, that kind of sharing with the district which may be as uh, disadvantaged, uh, disadvantaged as that? I think every district has something to offer. I think mm -hmm. there are great teachers and great administrators in every district. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it isn't, and I hope I didn't sound this way, it isn't up to Westport to show others or share. Mm -hmm. It is up to yeah. Westport to engage in a conversation and partnership with other districts so that all of us can benefit. I believe the real world, uh, outside of pockets of small towns that maybe um, don't have much diversity, but the real world has diversity, mm -hmm. and it's a strength. Mm -hmm. And if our students grow up and don't understand and experience diversity, um, they may have some misperceptions, or they may not um, actually benefit from uh, diversity when they encounter it mm -hmm. later, either in college or in their work experience. 
So if you if you look at um, and I and I think it's a it's a it's a, a moral imperative. I guess not only do we care about the children in our own district, but we should care about all children. And so if you if you look at caring about all children, the idea that we every single district um, spends resources on curriculum, instruction, assessments, and we spend many resources, um, every single one of us developing our own set of mm -hmm. curricula. We don't do enough things collaboratively where I think that there would be actually cost um, savings that maybe we could reallocate other funds in other ways that could begin to address some of the achievement gap. We also know that time on task is important. Uh, sometimes allowing a student to have extra time, they can learn the same content, but if they're closing the gap, they just need some extra time. That may cost something to have extra time after school with a tutor or have an after school program. Mm -hmm. If we're not lockstep in our models, our structural models of education to the point that every single district has to do everything individually, but that you know um, we're able to um, borrow some um, curriculum development and build off of that from Bridgeport. Bridgeport's allowed to uh, leverage um, its teaching and learning off of work that we've completed. Not only will there be a benefit in terms of saving money, but if we're developing um, curricula with more diverse districts, that influence is going to cascade through um, those uh, blueprints of learning. Mm -hmm. And so all of us are going to be um, enriched. So when we talk about diversity, I, I don't think the best approach is to keep students in isolation in pockets. Uh, I know that's how our towns are structured here. But again, I think we can break down those walls. And that's where technology is helpful because we may not be able to put students routinely um, on a bus to get them face to face, but we can have some meaningful relationships and they can they can Skype, they can they can talk on their phones um, directly and they can complete projects together and meaningful work together, as well as our educators. So in this case, technology can help bridge the gaps uh, between districts and uh, help us all move ahead. So um, just a little segue here, Dr. Palmer. Um, uh, Joel Klein, when he was in New York City, he he felt one of the strongest impediments to educational growth was actually the Board of Eds, because he felt that many Board of Eds, education had become so complex, and even though well-meaning, well-intentioned people served on the boards, but many times it had become too difficult for them to understand or, you know, just education has become a complex system. So as he he said, he he said that, you know, do you have a team of lay people deciding how you're going to be treated, but we do have a team of lay people deciding how kids are going to be educated. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I've been very fortunate. I feel that uh, the boards of ed uh, with whom I've worked and served have always had the best interests of the students um, at the center of their decision making. <clears throat> but I also feel it's my job as superintendent to inform the thinking of the Board of Ed because they 
if they're not educators, they don't come at this with the same perspective. So I am constantly um, in, uh, bringing forth information, articles, updating the board on what's happening. But our board, they're good, smart people. So if I say we have this problem, we believe it's this root cause analysis, this is why it's happening, these are some of the things we can do. If you share your, um, your thinking with the board, they, they, can, they can assist you and, and, and be an asset to you. Mm-hmm. So I haven't found that a board has obstructed our work. In fact, um, I think that having a board work hand-in-hand hand with a superintendent to achieve the goals is actually a more powerful force in mm-hmm. the community because the board members are viewed differently and they have different stakeholder support. We're just, you know, we're in different roles. So I'm actually amplifying the opportunity to do good work by uh, making sure that the board works works with me. And again, it comes back, I believe, as the um, the educator in that partnership, I uh, must make sure that the board understands the decisions I ask them to make. Yeah, I do feel it's a very strong, it's one of the most, uh, one of the strongest democratic processes in terms of checks and balances. Like, you know, many educators don't see their own blind spots and you live in your silo. So, you know, when you talk, to you, it gives you a different perspective altogether. Um, moving on to um, another important thing, um, the hiring practices. You know, there are many times that public schools have been um, there are many conversations about the hiring practices that are used in public schools. And, you know, when you look at the modern hiring practices, say at Google, at Facebook, or in various um, other uh, organizations and corporations, they're extremely, um, you know, as I said, just the hiring practices have changed. And if you think about the current thinking that if you are, if you want certain outcomes in your candidate or these are certain qualities you're looking at, how do you think our hiring practice in public education, is it effective? Does it need to change? And if, if so, how so? It's important to understand um, the body of work that someone has accomplished already when they come to the table um, to have a conversation about a position. Uh, when we're looking for teacher candidates, we actually have a performance assessment. We ask them to teach a class. Mm-hmm. And we observe their teaching, and we'll ask the students that they taught for feedback, and we'll ask um, the educators who are on the hiring committee to give us feedback, and we'll debrief with the um, with the person who um, just delivered the lesson with our with our candidate. We'll get all that information. We'll review. We'll do a paper review. Um, we will um, take time in our reference checks to ask probing questions. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that the person you hire um, is going to be able to achieve the goals um, that you that you are they're hoping to achieve. Um, additionally, we have um, built our work for um, administrative hires off of the research of Lyle Kurtman mm-hmm. and looking at um, how to determine who might be the right have the leadership profile. Um, to step into um, leadership roles for the district. So I think we've gone beyond just the standard interview. 
um, and I think we do our due diligence um, and, and have many looks at an individual, um, but I, I, it's, it's not a perfect process. We mm-hmm. still strive to uh, improve it. So this, my question was more general in the sense that, you know, uh, do you think that the hiring practices, you know, because there is a lot of conversations that one of the reasons that public education is not reaching the efficacy because it doesn't have the right people on the bus, as you mentioned uh, earlier, but then we don't have systems of putting um, right people on the bus. So, you know, do, is, do you feel that we do have the right systems or we don't? And if they need to be improved, if how so? Um, so when you talk about the right people, you're talking about teachers, administrators, mm-hmm. other support, like you know, any administrator. So you know, like like for example, again going back to charter schools or other you know nonprofits that work in this uh, area of secondary education. That's one of the reasons, or even for Teach for America for that matter. You know, their hiring processes and their recruiting process is very different compared to what we use here in public schools, um, and. That's one of the reasons they feel that the best candidates really are not, uh, you know, we are unable to get the, the, the outcomes are not aligned to our process. I think uh, I know somewhat about um, Teach for America. I don't know all of the, uh, all of the components of, of their process. Um, I think that and I know um, I've had Teach for America uh, candidates um, actually um, work with us in Hartford because they were trying to place um, their teachers in the Hartford Public Schools. So that while they may have some other screening um, techniques, when the rubber meets the road, they're they're looking at outcomes in the classroom. Mm-hmm. They are tracking the outcomes of the students. And I don't know whether it's a difference or there's a, uh, a significant difference in how candidates are screened for one organization or the other, but I think one area of growth for public education in general is we have to become more outcome-driven mm-hmm. in terms of looking at what's actually happening. Um, students may be happy, but are they, what are they learning? Mm-hmm. And are we, are we growing them? And if a student is two years behind in reading, it's not okay to bring them forward one year. Mm-hmm. So I think my focus as an educator has always been outcome driven. So early on after the selection process, it, again, it's going to be what, what can that person do mm-hmm. and looking at where the students are moving to. Mm-hmm. Um, this past year, for the first time in Westport, we gave feedback to teachers on how they move students forward in the class that they had the previous year mm-hmm. and gave them Mm-hmm. transition matrices mm-hmm. uh, so you could see how many students moved up how many students moved and this is on our smarter balanced assessment mm-hmm. that was so meaningful because that is. if you give data to people mm-hmm. specific data mm-hmm. teachers want students to do well yeah absolutely yeah and now this year setting goals i am confident that we're going to be performing at higher levels mm-hmm. so in terms of selecting teachers, I think I think we do a deep dive into their background, their talents. We have them um, show us who they are. But the bottom line is, we can do all of that. But what happens in the classroom if they're 
mm-hmm. they're not moving students forward, then we have to help them. And again, if after some period of time of helping them, students are not moving forward, then that's not the right person for the classroom. So one last question to wrap this up. Um, there is a lot of conversations in education about that, you know, we do not have enough teachers of color, particularly in districts where a large number of students, uh, you know, the teaching body does not represent what we have as, in terms of students. And again, I think it goes back to our diversity uh, conversation that we were having earlier. Do you think that's a simplistic way of looking at diversity and student identity and you know teacher representation, or how important it is to have, you know, the the, the teacher demographics be similar to student demographics. You know, I think it's important that uh, if we if we can achieve a very diverse workforce, that. Um, all of those individuals are role models in one way or another mm-hmm. for the students. And if all of the individuals uh, all look the same, and um, there might be uh, unintended message sent to students. Mm-hmm. So I think you, it, it, it inspires students to see um, diversity uh, at, at, at all levels of an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, if you go back 20 years, there weren't as many uh, female administrators. There were mm-hmm. very few female superintendents. I think they still are. So, <laughs> the numbers are... We're still uh, working yeah. on it. Yeah. We're still working on it. Still. I think 30% of the superintendents are female in the yeah. state of Connecticut. But whether it is uh, race, uh, ethnic background, um, sexual orientation, um, Sexual identity, whatever, whatever way we want to look at this, um, and slice and dice. I think the the idea that all kinds of individuals are able to thrive in an organization sends a powerful message, and it is important that every organization um, strives to have uh, a diverse workforce. Right now in education we're coming into a period that we anticipate there'll be a shortage of teachers because of the retirement of this entire generation Mm -hmm. uh, leaving us and we don't have the same number of individuals entering the teacher profession Mm -hmm. if we um, i was on task force for the state of connecticut regarding teacher preparation and how can we attract uh, minority candidates to the field of education Mm -hmm. because the number of individuals entering the pipeline for teachers to begin with Mm -hmm. it doesn't represent the population of -hmm. our state Mm -hmm. Uh, so you have very few fewer uh, minority candidates and uh, it becomes more difficult obviously if you don't even have a critical mass in the pool Mm -hmm. so I think it's a it's a systemic issue of the pipeline of teachers why aren't we attracting all kinds of individuals to teaching Mm-hmm. and it's a what, hard job it's it's a hard job it's a very hard job like you know there are kids who mm-hmm. I have taught who, who I would talk to you know would you want to become teachers they said no it's an extremely tough job I don't want to give the you know the kind of time I gave to my teachers I don't want to be on the receiving end of that well I've decided that instead of jury duty mm-hmm. we should have substitute teacher duty where every citizen has to serve 
a oh, few days. I could not substitute. agree with you more. Yeah, <laughs> that would be teacher. great. Oh, I agree with you on that. That would be great. That'll be awesome. That's a great idea. Um, Howard Gardner actually wrote when uh, President Obama was retiring, he wrote an article in New York Times. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. He said if President Obama decided to become a teacher in Chicago public schools for just one year, how the entire country, the educational uh, problems would change in this country. And, you know, it was it was a very cogent argument. So, yeah, no, I agree. Every Everybody, I would have loved my entire family to come teach in a school for one day. So do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Palmer? I think the field of education is one of the most uh, powerfully impactful in terms of changing changing the lives of students. Um, I think it is rich it's rich and rewarding as a professional and I I just feel honored that I've had the opportunity to serve the students and families over the years that I've been involved in this profession and I encourage anyone at any point in their lives because we have a lot of individuals who come to us as a second career um, if if you think that this is something that um, you can contribute and you also uh, would find uh, rewarding I encourage you um, to investigate this and to pursue this because we need great people I agree. I could not agree with you more. Thank you so much, Dr. Palmer. If you would like to get involved with Innovate CT, please visit our website at www.innovatect.org. There, you can find links to our social media. We currently are active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.